Thank you. I'm uh, very concerned at the beginning with the distance between what I have to say in English and its translation into Turkish or the understanding even of my written text in Turkish. So before I begin to read the translations which make up, uh, I can only read a small part of the paper anyway, I want to make what I hope will be some simpler remarks that our poor translator can catch in more everyday Turkish. And so let me begin with the title. Uh, the title here is the Rahimun, the, those, the instruments of divine compassion or love or mercy, between the path and the real. I think it's printed as from the path, or from the Sharia to the Hakika, but that is exactly the misunderstanding that Ibn Arabi devotes the whole Futuhat to correcting that the Sharia is somehow something other, there is the, eliminate the, that the Hakika is Allah and the world entirely is Sharia, is the path, the divine water of life. And so what stands between Sharia and Hakika in Ibn Arabi and in reality is Walaya, that is uh, the reality of our prox God's proximity to us and of our veiling and unveiling to the reality of that walaya, that divine guidance through all the form, the ways you'd have to translate walaya. It's love, guidance, direction, caretaking, compassion. So when you grasp this um, relation of our life, of life of each soul in Sharia, to the reality that underlies it, both as goal but also more importantly as source and context of all our life, then we can really begin to appreciate how everything that happens in life is part of this reality of Walaya. And that, for me, uh, when I was writing the chapter, reading, doing a seminar last fall on the chapters that are the core of this paper, I was stunned, as I always am when I come back to Minarabi, to discover that something I not only totally knew, but something in this case that really makes sense of all of the Futuhat. In each fasla, the six sections, the six fasulah of the Futuhat, Ibn Arabi has two chapters which are particularly devoted to Sharia and Hakika, or two sections at least within each fasla. And they become kind of like compasses or lighthouses that help to make sense of the structure of the entire Futuhat. But so I'm, again, before I start reading just a few of these uh, glimmers, these lavaya, these sort of flashes uh, from these particular chapters, I won't get very far anyway in the limited time we have today, I was looking for an image that would convey, um, you know, when my colleague Dr. Pazuki yesterday was running short in time, you'll notice he started quoting uh, Rumi and Shavistari because poets can take hundreds of pages of something like the Futuhat and express it in a single poetic image. Of course, if you really want to understand it, especially in terms of scripture, you have to go back to Ibn Arabi and, and interpret and contextualize uh, in prose, if you will, in a very mystical prose, what the poets say in very simple images. But, um, so before I go into this role of the Rahimun, um, well, let me say one more thing, is Ibn Arabi is not made, and this is very important for those of you who are perhaps encountering Ibn Arabi for the first time, or getting beyond the familiar text of the Fasus, to begin to explore the depths of the Futuhat. You might think, I've been reading and studying this for 30 years with many of the greatest teachers and authorities, 
And you might think it would get easier. In my experience, it doesn't get easier to read Ibn Arabi. It gets harder. When I was reading it in the seminar, I would have to read it two or three times before the class. We would go to the class, we'd read it very closely, word by word, trying to translate it just for understanding. And then when you try and have to turn it into English or Turkish, you have to read it eight or nine or ten more times to really begin to understand what he's saying. So when I'm going to read out loud some of these translations for you, um, they're not meant to be understood as scholarly or conceptual or prose, as you might read a polemical political writer or a journalist or a philosopher. They're meant to evoke the experiences that we all have and our understanding. This is always a question of spiritual intelligence of our experience of what Sharia in that deeper sense of the path of the water of life really means. And the best way to do that is to read small bits of these translations with other people and discuss to actually share one's understanding. I, I just took these translations down to a Sufi group gathering in New York about a month ago and I read the one story, which is the first one I'm going to read, um, and we spent three hours of some of the most intense sharing and storytelling that I've ever experienced, just with the experiences that were evoked by that one story in Ibn Arabi. So that's, I have, I can't emphasize that too much for those of you who think Ibn Arabi is difficult or whatever. If you don't take it and take it as a, just as you would any other uh, poetic text and really, uh, share the experience and understanding of other people. Every person has something to contribute to this process by which we cease to be the blind man and the elephant and actually begin to perceive the elephant. So I, you'll notice there's no conclusion to this paper because whenever I tried to write, I immediately realized that what this image was about was perceiving that uh, from within this dunya we see these differences. We fail to see what's essential, which is the ruh, the wind that fills all those sails, that that is the hakika. Every sail was filled. It didn't matter whether one boat was bigger than another or going this speed or that speed or what direction, but the lesson was about it. And of course, the way we can actually tell that we're progressing and have some sense of this, we can't see the wind, but we can see the clouds of the difficulties and the trials and the lessons of life. And it's, of course, those are precisely what take us from the Sharia to our awareness of the Hakika. So I hope that that uh, very poetic image of, of Sheikh Odai Effendi will uh, help you to understand the particular glimpses of this reality of the way of the spirit that I'm going to turn to right now. Um, there was something else I was going to say by way of introduction, but let me just go ahead. I've shared with the translator now. Also, so for people who, where my English might be too fast or you might have trouble with English for the Turkish audience, I distributed 25 copies of the translations that I hope made their way among the Turkish uh, people who've come to the crowd, and we're on Roman numeral two. Uh, and almost all of this is translation of an Arby. In each case, I just give a paragraph of introduction. So we may begin these, begin these explorations of the Sharia and Hakika with the delightful story from chapter 437 of the Futuhat, which illustrates and epitomizes the key practical role at once inspiring, teaching, illuminating, and reproaching of the human instruments or vessels of divine compassion and divine love, the Rahimun, at every stage of the path of realization, leading us back to the divine reality. At the same time, quoting this anecdote in its original context, 
should help to suggest the complex but memorably effective rhetorical devices that Ibn Arabi uses throughout his Lubeckian illuminations to communicate the actual spiritual realities and most importantly, each reader's own decisively illuminating direct experiences, which underlie his notoriously complex philosophical and theological formulations of these same metaphysical processes. So the title of this chapter 437 is on the inner knowing, the real understanding, the modifa, of the mutual point of encounter, the manazala, of the meeting place of the Rab and this Ad. And he, Ibn Arabi does this all the time. He creates his own kind of uh, hadith, kutsi, his uh, divine expressions, uh, which are so rich in the latter parts of the Futuhat. And this is the sort of what the Marifa is of. Whoever truly knows his or her share of my path, of shariati, of God's sharia, knows his or her share of me. For you are with me just as I am with you at the same level. Let me repeat that because everything else is just commentary. Whoever knows his share of my path, shariati, knows his share of me. For you are with me, andi, and is more than with, it's together uh, being within, just as I am with you at the same level. And he starts with a poem, which I think is worth translating, even if you need to read it to appreciate it uh, more. Whoever is for me, I am for him, or whoever is mine, I am his. Just like what he said, I shall, if you all are thankful, I shall surely increase you all much more. It's a longer quotation from the Quran. But if you're ungrateful, surely my torment is intense. For the divinely appointed path, the Shar, is the inner dimension of what is apparent. It holds the spiritual stations of the, of the servants. That reminds me of what I had meant to say. I, I just saw a few weeks ago at a Turkish film festival a beautiful, beautiful film that expresses everything I'm going to talk about today, about the inside, the dunya perspective, and the akhira perspective of life. It's uh, Fatih Akin's The Other Side of Life, uh, which I would urge everybody to see from this perspective, because I, I find with my my students who rarely know much about Islam or about spirituality, that you have to use films to get them started to appreciate what these great writers are writing about. And this last film of Fatih Akin is very self-consciously this attempt to show the sharia of our life and the hakika. You're, you're shown the visible world of the dunya, but you're given the keys to realize eventually that you're watching it from God's perspective, from God's perspective of the divine love and compassion which is holding these characters as they go throughout the film. And it's a, it's Ibn Arabi in a, in a nutshell, so if you get a chance, I don't know the Turkish title, but it's something like the other side of this line. We'll go on with the poem. He makes use of the creation of Kaon, of existence, just as it serves him, with no increase. The contrast here is between other creatures and human beings. But whoever fulfills his covenant with God, that ever can become in son, Surely he, God, is the fulfiller of all covenants. So his is the descending toward us through the names, through all of creation, while ours or our perfection, our command, is the very act of ascending toward him through our actions. For he is the all-preserving, the all-witnessing. So he reserved specially for us the joy of unveiling and the joys of witnessing him. So then he begins, as Ibn Arabi usually does with the ayah, God said, so you all remember me so that I may remember you. And, be, and he doesn't put his part of the same verse. And be thankful to me and do not be ungrateful to me. 
And here's the story, he says, he illustrate that. I saw someone asking a person, begging him, and you see this wherever you are, wherever they're beggars, for God's sake and because of your reference for God, give me something. And there was with me a righteous servant, an Saleh called Mudawar, from somewhere in Spain. So, that, so the fellow who was being begged of opened up his purse filled with big and small silver coins, and he began to look for the smallest piece of silver in the kind of tin kurush. Then that righteous servant said to me, do you know what he's looking for? Tell me, I replied. He's looking for his price in God, uh, God's eyes and his real worth, he explained. So whenever he brings out a big piece of silver, he says, with the tongue of his spiritual state, Sabanahan, ah, we aren't worth that much with God. So then that person brought out the tiniest coin he could find and gave it to the beggar. Now surely God described himself as jealous, as being a, this is a hadith, although he knew that most of his servants would devote the abundance of their wealth and their dearest possessions for the desires of their carnal souls, their nafs, and their earthly aims. So whenever most of them give something for God's sake, they would only give a dry crust, a penny, a threadbare cloak, and the like. The many and the majority of them are like that. So when the day of rising comes and God brings forth without anyone still seeing all that his servant gave away for his sake, for God's sake, which you meant his servant, and God also brings forth what that servant has given away for other than God's sake, then he says to him, O oh, my servant, isn't all of this my blessing which I bountifully bestowed upon you? So what did you give away to those who begged of you for my sake? Then the servant points to that trifling, paltry thing, like the penny in the opening story. And God asked the servant, So where is all that you gave for the desire of your carnal soul? And the servant points to the abundant bulk of his other possessions. Then God says, Aren't you ashamed before me to come and meet me like this, when you knew all along that you would come to stand before me, and that I would oblige you to confirm what you have accomplished? So how immense is that servant's embarrassment and humiliation? But that's only the beginning of the story. Listen to what Ibn Arabi says next. But then, after that, God will say to that servant, I've already forgiven you at the request or through the prayer of that beggar because of his rejoicing at the little that you did give to him. And I have caused that to increase many times over while all that you gave for the desire of your carnal self has disappeared. And notice this isn't like, this isn't about the lesson here isn't about getting off the hook by what he gave. It's about the way immeasurable consequences of our smallest acts of caring, of mercy, of attention to those who we somehow sense need that particular divine glance. Then God brings forth, Verily I have taken what you gave freely as charity, what you gave as sadaqah, and increased it many times over. And of course, again, the increase here isn't just some kind of phantasmic imagined reward in some other life. It's the actual impact of our acts of charity as they ripple out in these immense ripples and waves throughout life, of which we only given the grace to see a tiny bit now and then. So then God brings that before, before the witnesses at the judgment. And behold, that penny that the man had given to the beggar has come back bigger than Mount Hood. But what he gave for the sake of other than God has become, in the words of the Quran, scattered dust. So God said, God wipes out wrongful accumulation, Rabbah, while he increases many times over the acts of sadaqah, of freely given charity. But as for the true knowers of, by, and through God, 
Even the least of them is great, and nothing is more immense than the great ones among them, among the awliya. For they are those who only give for God's sake the very dearest of what is with them and the very least of what they have, as they give their all for God's sake. For all of them, everything they are is for God, just as everything they have is for God. The true servant and everything he possesses belongs to his master. Just one more paragraph from this same chapter. For the true knower at every breath, at every instant, is turning back or returning to God in regard to all the actions emanating from him, both with the divinely prescribed turning, the Tawbah Mashrua, and with a real inner turning, turning a Tawbah Hakikiya. The prescribed outward turning is his turning away from whatever is opposed to God's purposes, while the inner real turning is his being free and absolved from any reliance on any illusory personal power or strength to relying entirely on God's power and strength. So the true knower is continuously standing between these two turnings in this realm of spiritual responsibility of ta'if and in this lower life, this dunya. Next to go on to how we join the Rahimun. Next we turn to Ibn Arabi's summary, chapter 559, where he has these wonderful summaries of each of the 560 chapters of the Futuhat, of the essential inner meaning, the sirr of chapter 339, which is about the inner knowing of the way station, of the kneeling of the path of the Sharia before the Hakika. His key point articulated in this concise passage is that the path to the ultimate reality of fuel humanity lies above all in our realization of the all-encompassing divine reality of God's creative, loving compassion, Rahma, and in becoming a living instrument of the All-Merciful. Here, at the very end of the Futuhat, and just before his immense concluding chapter of spiritual ethics, the Sheikh pointedly contrasts his distinctive guiding focus on the centrality of compassion or love with the widespread popular Sufi notions of their spiritual affection, what they call the process of tahalub ba'akhlaqullah, or taking on the character traits and qualities of lives, as a kind of item by item uh, acquisition or gradual performance of a long list of separate spiritual virtues and divine qualities. And he begins by the famous hadith, the true human being was created according to the form of the all-merciful Surah al-Rahman. God only has servant mercy upon his servants, the merciful ones, or the lovers, or Rahman. According to the hadith, the ha those who have mercy, compassion, the Rahmun, the all-merciful has compassion, mercy upon them. So have mercy, this is still quoting the hadith, so have mercy or be compassionate with those who are on earth, so that the one who is in heaven will have mercy upon you all. Ibn Arabi explains this hadith by saying that kinship for the room, Rahim is a branch of the divine name, Rahman, the All-Merciful. And the All-Merciful is the form according to which the fully human being and son was created. Uh, keep in mind the distance from our Basharic state to what he means by in son. So whoever connects or puts into practice that kinship, that is, whoever becomes a living mirror of the Rahman, becomes one of the Rahman, attains already the ultimate goal of true and full humanity. And that person is the actual reality of that attainment. But whoever cuts off that kinship, cuts off our relation of Rahma to all other creatures, uh, is, like, um, is likewise the actual reality of that breaking off from God. 
So the all-merciful is what separates, to begin with, that Adamic form of insan through our creation. And the true human being, the insan, is what attains that realized unit, reunion with the all-merciful, becoming a rocket, becoming an instrument of God's love. For the branch is only a piece, something cut off, a qitah. So scrutinize and reflect upon this test. And the test, of course, is of our separation from God and of our reunion with God. I'm going to skip over the... Oh, let me just say a couple more things from this couple lines. I know that. Yeah. Just a couple quotes here. So if you connect or practice that connection with the unmerciful, then you become a fully realized embodiment of the real. For that is how he, the prophet Muhammad, acted. And this was the revelation, the why that he descended and brought down upon us. Therefore, if you do not take on those divine qualities or character traits in precisely this way, that is, by becoming the true instrument of God's love, then you will not have fulfilled your agreement with God. Now, I'll just, in the couple minutes that remain, just want to read from Roman numeral 4, if you have the text, um, a few things that he says. Um, it's a wonderful chapter, again, from, uh, from 559, but summarized in chapter, um, chapters 262 and 263 of the Intermeaning of Shari and Hatika. Um, so I'll just have to. This talks about Hawa here, but Hawa is Eros. Hawa is the love that is really the earthly dimension of that Rahma in all of its forms. So love is unfettered and roaming freely, as we clearly witness. Love leads whoever follows it astray from the pathway of God, but not from God. Since it pervades the whole entirety of God's dominion, it is in God's hand in all its forms. It's in the Malakut Fiyadullah. If the matter, Alamra, the divine order, were not thus, God would have harmed it. But if the ruler were not seeking that order by veiling, it, by veiling his presence in all creation, then it would, uh, uh, then it would not be, uh, be veiled. But God is in the being, in the actual existence, a very existent thing. So that love has unfettered freedom and open permission, and it has a key for every door. And he is the one who rules over its opening, its fat, which is why he is called the opener of Fatah. Its ruling power, its sultan, is in both this world and the next, though it becomes fully manifest in the resurrected state, Mahathira. For that love for the people of blessedness is not a losing turn, nor is it a fruitless trade, since there, in the life of this world and the next, for you all is whatever your souls desire. And desire, shahwa here, is nothing other so whoever has love, loves has already fallen, and hawa fakat which is why they say of the madly passionate lover, the ashik, that there is no way to reach him, even if he's gone astray from the way. So from that most manifestation of self-revealing at the moment of unveiling, we come, the minds and intellects go away, so that this unveiling is for God's friends and his lovers and his knowers. So the right of love, this is a poem in the Arabic, is that love be the cause of love, for if love were not in the heart, the heart would not worship love, or would not serve and worship. For there is nothing in existence other than love. The divine order is the order of love. The intellect is in need of it, and the intellect is only a servant standing before it. Love has full freedom and authority and uprightness, and the capacity for turning away from what the intellect enjoys. So what's most divine in us is not our intellect but our capacity for love, which the intellect should serve. 
When the intellect overestimates its knowing, it favors its own discursive thinking over love. But as for religious tradition, for not for only the name Hawa has veiled its reality from the hearts. There is nothing there in existence but love's decree and its ruling influence. The intellect Ak is only named because of its hobbling constraint, its Akwam. But love is only so-called Hawa because of its ever-triumphing power. Love is a divine attribute and God knows it. It can lead us off from the highway of divine prescription, swerving aside. But love is the divine will. I speak directly, he says. You are unaware of that. Were it not for love, Satan, at least, knowing only intellect, would not be assailed with envy of Adam. For the intellect must forego this station of God's love, since it has no entry there. So regard it closely, O my support. Love has influences that no one even knows. It rules and governs over the spirits and the body. In minds fear love's authority. It is the trusted guardian to whom the country has been assigned. Thank you for your